Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. So in the second half of today's show, we're going to talk about whether or not it's possible for us to have elections that work in November, work in the sense of awarding the victory to the appropriate candidate based on the number of votes gotten and not a lot of other things. Um, But we're going to begin by talking about COVID-19. And these two issues are conjoined because obviously COVID-19 and our failure to master COVID-19 uh, will affect the ability of people to vote, how safe they feel voting, the necessity of switching over to mail-in ballots, which some people have higher or lower trust factors about. So these are you can't take these things, two things and pull them apart. In fact, in terms of electoral obstructions, there's a way in which they mirror COVID in other senses, in the sense that now... Uh, election officials around the country are fighting for resources and equipment against each other. Does that sound familiar? Also, there's ways in which electoral hardships fall more heavily on poor communities and uh, communities of color. Does that sound familiar? Anyway, we're going to begin with COVID-19. I was going to begin by saying there's there's basically no good news about COVID-19. I don't think that's quite true. For example, New York City has had a day of no deaths here in Connecticut. We've had, I think, two, at least two days where there were no deaths. Scotland uh, has five days in a row, no COVID-19 deaths. Ireland has had two days in a row uh, with no COVID deaths. I mean, it is possible to subdue this beast. Um, it's just not being done in a lot of places where it needs to be done. So to talk about that, whoop, I'm going to bring, bring a different piece of equipment up here. Uh, joining us now is Saskia Popescu, an infectious disease epidemiologist at the University of Arizona, one of the several very hot states uh, right now, uh, not only temperature-wise, but COVID-wise. Uh, so she is joining us to discuss that very thing. Saskia Popescu, welcome to our show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So I wish we were talking uh, on a happier day in Arizona, but uh, like Texas and Florida and a bunch of other states as well, uh, Arizona is, uh, well, I mean, I think it's fair to say that Arizona is in trouble right now, but maybe I should be talking to you about that instead of uh, making my own characterizations. We're definitely in trouble right now. We've had, as you've seen throughout the news, just very widespread transmission, rapid spikes in cases, and unfortunately, you know, it's it's very concerning because we're seeing hospitalizations that are are stressing healthcare systems and public health. Right now, hospitals are at about 90% capacity. And the cases have been around 4,000 per day. So I'm hoping that's going to be changing with the new mask ordinances because now is about the time that we're going to hopefully see a 10 to 15% drop as a result of that. But unfortunately, you know, a couple of days doesn't make a trend. So I'm, I'm hopeful that with so much messaging and emphasis and mask ordinances and closing of bars and things like that, that we will have a shift in what's going on because Arizona is very much struggling, especially when you think about the heat and the strain that already exists on the healthcare and public health systems. Right. And you'll probably get a bad number today because Tuesdays tend to, because of reporting quirks, uh, yeah. Tuesday afternoons tend to be bad uh, afternoons. Uh, so you mentioned mask ordinances. Explain what's being done there. 
So previously, Governor Ducey had banned or barred, I should say, local leaders from implementing mask ordinances. So for a while, there wasn't actually a statewide requirement for masking. And then in June, I believe June 23rd, local leaders, meaning mayors and county leaders, were able to put in mask ordinances that required mask usage in public. And a majority have. I think there's only one or two that haven't. But for the for most of the areas, there are requirements now for community masking. And I, I believe most of them are practicing the kind of a, a parking ticket, if you will, where if you don't get them, um, police will, you know, and whether it's a business owner or police, you know, they can call and inform them and you will be given a ticket. I know there's been a lot of concern regarding that, but so much of this is about social responsibility. So really how Phoenix, where I live, try to um, enforce it is giving people the education and the tools to be successful. And then, you know, how do we approach this more from making it a mandatory standpoint? So that's really where we're at right now, because we know that community-based mask wearing does have a huge impact. So um, obviously, because of the population, Florida, Texas, and Arizona, they're getting a lot of the attention right now. Um, as somebody involved in education, what would you want us to learn from Arizona? In other words, when Arizona is taught in 2022 in epidemiology classes, what kinds of lessons would you hope would be imparted? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> um, there are so many separate things. I think for one, we've really seen a lot of politicization of public health, and that is not something that we're often taught or at least we kind of maybe always have an optimistic viewpoint of it. And unfortunately in Arizona, we've seen that both with the modeling team that was disbanded prematurely and, and really right before Governor Ducey reopened and just rapid reopenings, too fast, too quick. Um, so I, I'm hopeful that these lessons will be good indicators of the desperate need for you know a, a strong relationship between politics and public health and the implications when those are fractured, especially in terms of very contradictory information. You know, we see this both at a national level and at a local level with public health saying, you know, this is a huge issue. This is what we might have to do. But then, you know, um, political leaders saying, well, we're really past it or, you know, we're doing we're doing so well, things aren't that bad. And for the public, I think that can be really confusing. So as epidemiologists and, you know, public health experts, how do we combat that? How do we ensure that there is transparency and trust in the public health information and guidance, but also data? And how do we work better and communicate that? Because right now, I think we're really struggling with risk communication and risk awareness and giving the public to the skills and the awareness of how they can be safe, even if you know, their leaders are saying, well, it's not that bad, but the numbers are saying otherwise. So how can you still keep yourself safe? Right. I think, you know, one of the things that happens cognitively with people is a kind of goalpost moving. You know, I'm sure if we said on March 1st, wow, you know, there could be 25,000 unnecessary deaths from this disease, uh, people would have want, would have said, well, that's we need to avoid that. And of course, that number is you know, the long, long past. But I think people move the goalposts. And they say, well, it's only 100,000 people, you know, or mm -hmm. the, the rate of death is, you know, is less than 1% or, you know, and, and so people habituate and and the thing that's the constant for some people, it seems to be, is the idea, well, this isn't that bad. And yeah. and then the numbers change, but the thing that stays is that notion that whatever these numbers are, they're not as bad as they could be. Yeah, I've seen a lot of focusing on mortality data lately and saying, well, see, the deaths aren't climbing or they're not that bad. And 
I, I really get so nervous when we talk about it like that. First of all, because I think it really does a disservice to the people who have lost their lives yes. and who are sick and you know have long-term implications of this illness and just all of the, the strain and the burden that this has placed on people. But when we focus on mortality, it basically is saying there's an acceptable amount of loss of people. And that really should not be the case. We should not want, have, we, we should not want a single person to die of this. Um, and we know that that's not realistic, but saying... 10 people is acceptable is really hurtful to those 10 people and their families. So, so much focus is really just mind boggling to me on mortality. And when people are like, well, the, you know, the rates aren't that bad. They're not climbing in relation to what we're seeing in cases in Arizona and Florida and Texas. But the truth is they are starting to climb, but we also know that mortality is a lagging indicator. So if you were to go get tested today, cause you didn't feel well, that would be reported. And then with a few days that would go into the public health database and online. And that's what's reported out nationally. But if you're hospitalized, that could be days or weeks. And if unfortunately that doesn't go well and you do pass, that data is going to be several weeks out. So focusing on what's the mortality rates right now and saying that they're not that bad is not only unethical, in my opinion, but it's, it's ignoring the fact that there is a time lag. Uh, there's a time lag, yes. And, and well, I, there's so much I want to ask you about. One of the things that I do now is I kind of lurk and monitor on social media uh, in a couple of sites where I know there are people who are, A, resisting government controls of any kind or even government guidance of any kind and kind of, you know, um, imagining a cascade into some kind of new world order of government control and also rejecting a lot of scientific information. And Saskia, one thing that, that I am shocked by although I shouldn't be, is the level of scientific illiteracy that's exhibited on some of these boards. You know, people who, they don't seem profoundly stupid. But for example, the other day I actually saw somebody say, uh, re respective of, of the idea of a possible vaccine at some point, why would I in l let them inject the very virus into me that I'm, that they say that I need to avoid? And I'm thinking, well, <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, there's so much that you can say about that, ranging from the fact that it would be inactivated or attenuated to an awful lot of these vaccines out there out there right now that, that are uh, in trials are, you know, mRNA vaccines that don't contain mm -hmm. any intact virus or or vector vaccines. Same deal. But just the, the there's it's such an uphill battle to just get people to believe in science. And maybe part of the problem is they've been given another option not believing in science. And that option is sometimes coming from fairly respected leaders. Yeah, I think this is a good indicator that we do need to invest more in science education in general for this entire country. And from a public health perspective, I try to see this as an opportunity for us to improve how we do outreach to communities and explain things to them. Because clearly there, there's a gap, right? You know, we, we need to do better. Um, but again, you know, as you mentioned, when you have national leadership, intentionally contradicting what public health officials are saying, like Dr. Fauci, or discrediting that information or the leader itself or themselves, I think that really normalizes the behavior and that normalizes science denialism. And that's concerning to me because we want people to trust the information and the guidance that's being shared with them. So mask, you know, the mask issue right now is a good example of that. And, you know, the last thing I want is somebody to have it in their head and, and normalize that masks are bad for them or masks are a political decision when it's really about your safety and the safety around yours, around you. So I, you know, I definitely agree. I think there's so many angles for 
how we educate in science and that we have clearly a lot of work to do, but it definitely worries me when we have national leaders, you know, pushing science denialism and so much of the, you know, the anti-public health verbiage. Yeah. Well, I also, I feel as though one of the things that I see now, and and maybe we can sort of talk about it in terms of the rapid reopening in places like Arizona is, you know, there is obviously some kind of economic imperative uh, behind uh, pushes to reopen businesses. And there is some kind of social and pedagogical imperative behind the idea of reopening schools. But there's an awful lot of stuff that's happening just because people either don't feel like doing what they need to do. I mean, there's a lot of people not wearing masks because they just don't like wearing masks. They don't consider it comfortable. It's an inconvenience to them. Uh, And there are things opening. I mean, Hong Kong closed its Disneyland because they had a rash of new cases. In in our country, Disney World opened over the weekend. They do sell a four-pack of masks with Disney characters for $19.99, which they and they recommend and encourage the face coverings. And there's just this kind of sense coming from the uh, government sector, but also the private sector that all of this stuff is pretty much optional. If you feel like doing it, you can do it. And I wonder if, you know, the imperative nature of it just hasn't ever been conveyed. I, I definitely think that has been a very real issue. Part of this is can communicating social responsibility. And sometimes I feel that if you can educate and communicate with someone why this benefits them, that will help convince them instead of just shaming them into that. We know that doesn't work for harm reduction purposes. We know you can't shame someone into doing the right thing, you know, wearing a mask. So really trying to identify why people aren't wearing them is huge, but also so much of this is really about that false dichotomy that exists. You know, if, it's the economy versus public health. And we know that's not the case. We know the economy thrives when public health thrives. So really focusing on the fact that if we all chip in and wear masks for a while, we can get through this a lot faster and masks keep those people around you safe. So let's give you those tools to how to safely wear it, why you should wear it, but also really communicating to people why it benefits them. And, you know, I just, I see so much of people thinking, well, I can't do this. You know, I can't go to my favorite restaurant or my favorite bar or, you know, as Disneyland is reopening, you can, but here's how you should be safe about it though. And I, I think that's the big thing. Everybody is just so frustrated and pushing back and wanting to get out and live life normally, but it's not going to be normal. This is a new normal. And the hardest thing is embracing that, but also learning how to be safe in that environment and how to not propagate more COVID-19 transmission. So uh, we need to, I think, do better in terms of our messaging and hopefully encouraging and normalizing the behavior of wearing masks, of, you know, really having great social distancing, being mindful of those environments that are high risk. And as much as we try to, it's it's very challenging with, you know, the, the contradictory leadership messaging too. So I'm hopeful that we can try to get through this in the future, but with the politicizing right now, it makes it extremely difficult. You know, Saskia, you might've heard me say that uh, the second part of the show is going to be about the elections uh, and that there are some interesting parallels between electoral problems and COVID problems. Another one is, maybe it's not, uh, maybe it's a strength in each case and that it's, but also a disadvantage. And that is 
um, our fragmented way of dealing with things. So there are basically 50 or 51 different COVID policies uh, across America and maybe even down below that at the at the municipal level, even more, just as on, on our electoral system. There are, you know, 51 different systems for running elections. The strength here is there isn't a single point of failure that takes everybody down. That's why I'm sitting in Connecticut right now and we have days where there are no deaths and declining caseloads and stuff like that. And, uh, and unfortunately, you're sitting in Arizona where the opposite is true. But it seems like one of the places where everybody still doesn't have a solution is in this idea of reopening schools. Let's hear the Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, uh, talking about uh, her reaction to pushback from governors and mayors within that uh, that patchwork system, not all of whom are enthusiastic about doing this. Kat? Well, Chris, there's nothing in the data that suggests that kids being in school is in any way dangerous. We know that children uh, contract and uh, have the virus at far lower incidence than any other part of the population. And we know that other countries around the world have reopened their schools and have done so successfully and safely. And kids there are going back to school every day. And so that has got to be the posture here. Parents are are expecting that this fall their kids are going to have a full-time experience with their learning, and we need to follow through on that promise. Right. So we could spend the next half hour pulling that apart and talking about some of the fallacies that exist inside. I mean, including the way the other countries don't have vertical infection curves uh, Mm -hmm. the way the United States uh, does. Uh, But but just talk a little bit about how you as an epidemiologist see this idea of school reopening? I think this is probably one of the hardest problems to tackle, really, because we know the importance of schools. And ultimately that, you know, we want children to go back to school and we know that their parents need them to go back to school. So this has been a huge strain. But the concern is also how do we keep not only children safe, but their families and teachers? Because we know that most children under 12 when they do get sick, it tends to be quite mild. Of course, there are always outliers, but in general, they tend to have very mild symptoms. But if you, you know, are an elderly person at home or a teacher, you are at an increased risk then, you know, you know, based off of, of course, your, your medical history, but you're more likely to have more severe illness than the children under 12. So we're then putting them at risk. And, operationalizing this, what really truly needs to get done is going to be just a Herculean effort. And we've chronically underfunded schools in the United States and and teachers. So I'm, I'm so concerned that as we talk about reopening schools, because we know it is an imperative need, how do we actually turn that into function? How do we make this happen realistically without totally stressing teachers and administrators and parents and children even to to a level that is just not worth it and risky and dangerous. So that's what we're really struggling with right now is, you know, I can give you the engineering controls you need and some of the process changes you need in a school, but how you operationalize that is so difficult. But moreover, do we put this extra strain and burden on teachers when they're already so overwhelmed and they're going to be scared about their health? I mean, these are all really challenging conversations and topics that I I don't think we're going to be able to answer in just a couple of conversations or say just, you know, blindly, yes, go back to school. It has to get done. It's not that simple. And we need to make sure, just like state reopenings, that we do it right and we don't force it. Um, 
another dilemma here is in testing, and these things are related. Um, in fact, so I've been a journalist here in Connecticut for over 40 years, and so nobody listens to me still. So <laughs> one of the ideas that I had was, before we re reopened the schools in Connecticut, let's try to test every, let's say, fifth grader, you know, every single fifth grader. You won't get to all of them, but, you know, let's say you got 70% of them. You'd probably begin to get a sense of how the disease is seeded within a heterogeneous population, right? If you tested, if you tried to test every fifth grader or every whatever, pick a grade, you know, um, you get, you'd get maybe kind of a sense of what you're dealing with. But we don't seem to be able to test on those kinds of levels. Uh, and I don't know. I don't know what your latest positive rate is. I saw a 27.7 positive rate for mm -hmm. Arizona at one point. That obviously means you're not testing enough. It's sort of the contradiction. The high positive percentage means there's actually a lot of uncounted cases that, that aren't being detected because the net isn't cast wide enough. But maybe you can say from where you sit right now how testing looks. Well, so about the positivity rate, uh, it, it can indicate that there's not enough testing going on. But in some, you know, if you also look at the, the increasing number of tests being done and you're still having increases in cases, that does mean it's a true positivity rate. So, you know, it, it depends on how much is being done and what you're really seeing. But a big piece, you know, I think we rely so heavily on testing as kind of this gating criteria in terms of going back to work, going back to school. And it's an important piece, but it's not the only piece because again, this is a moment in time. This is a single moment that you're testing a patient or a person, you know, the next day they could be positive. I've seen that in patients in healthcare. And unfortunately, you know, if you're going to test people, first of all, we really have to talk about what that means, what our response me mechanisms are. So if you test every fifth grader, you're going to find, of course, some cases. And what does that mean for the rest of them? Are they exposed? Are you going to send them all home for 14 days? How frequently are you going to test them? And, you know, what, what do you do about the classrooms and the teachers? So, you know, I think we rely so heavily on testing right now. We, we need to do better for people who need to get tested, but when we're using it as a return to life kind of criteria, I worry about that there's not a lot of um, metrics or guidelines for that outside of just doing it once. But again, then people get that false sense of security. Well, I was negative, so I'm fine. <laughs> you know, I've, I've been tested several times in healthcare and each time I know great. That's for that one day. I feel good. Right. <laughs> but unfortunately, we know that it, it honestly is just a single moment in time. Well, Saskia Popescu, thank you so much for spending time with us today. I hope you'll come back. You're a great guest. And I also hope things get better in, in Arizona. I know it's going to take a lot more than hoping, but, uh, but good luck to you. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Saskia Povescu is an infectious disease epidemiologist at the University of Arizona. Uh, we're going to take a break from COVID-19 and then give you something else to worry about, which is whether or not we can successfully have elections in which the person who gets the most votes or the most electoral votes uh, is the person that we think it is. Does that make any sense? Close my eyes and I pray I should tell you that, you know, a lot of times when we're doing a show like this one, you know, our show is basically divided into three segments. 
And there's sort of we consciously will have you know, the third segment be about really smart parrots or something, just so you don't get too depressed, you know. But we we're not doing that today. We don't care how depressed you get, apparently. Uh, but uh, we've been talking about COVID nineteen. We're now we're going to spend the uh, next two segments talking about the challenges uh, to the integrity of our electoral process, which are substantial right now. And we're certainly talking to the right person. That's Richard Hassan, otherwise known as Rick, uh, a professor of law and political science at University of California, Irvine, the founding co-editor of Election Law Journal. He runs the election blog. His newest book is Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and the Threat to American Democracy. Uh, he did a podcast by more or less the same name with our very good friend Dahlia Lithwick uh, earlier this year. Uh, it sort of ended right before it was clear how much trouble we were in on the pandemic front. Uh, but uh, Rick Hassan, welcome to our show. It's great to be with you. So there's a way in which the conversation I just had with an epidemiologist does kind of tag along side by side with some of the challenges to electoral integrity. Do they fall more heavily on persons of color and communities of color and, and poor communities? Uh, um, yes. Uh, do they result, particularly now, in, in states competing with one another for necessary and vital equipment? Equipment? Yes. Uh, is there confusion about what the best technology to use is? Yes. I mean, there's sort of an odd sense in which these these are kind of conjoined twins of crises. But uh, I want you to talk a little bit about the your specialty, the electoral one. And maybe we should begin by talking about the problem of even talking. Right. There's a way in which every time we have a conversation like this one, we hope that the the benefit outweighs, outweighs the risk, the risk being that people get even more pessimistic uh, about the electoral system and then less enthusiastic about participating. I think it's right that it can be demobilizing to talk about all the problems with our election system and people saying, why bother? You know, we're hearing the president make these unsubstantiated claims that uh, voting by mail is insecure and is uh, rife with fraud. And now we're seeing many of his followers not voting by mail, and some of them are not going to be able to vote at all because uh, we're having problems assembling uh, polling places uh, with workers and with equipment that can be safe for voting. So, yeah, we're in a tough spot right now, and we were in a tough spot before the virus hit. We're in a tougher spot right now, and the reason to talk about it now is it's not quite too late. Uh, we're getting close to the line in terms of what it takes to prepare an election so that it will be a safe and uh, healthy experience that will reflect the will of the voters. Uh, but we're getting close to that time where that window is going to close and we're just going to um, have to go with whatever conditions we have on the ground and try to hold the best election possible under very difficult circumstances. So I want to talk uh, just in a few seconds about uh, what we can do while we're still close to that line. But just for a moment anyway, let's look beyond that line. And let me just say that I'm sitting here in Connecticut. It's a very small state. We have 169 towns. Each one has at least two uh, registrars of voters who are elected people who run uh, elections uh, that can uh, create a certain amount of confusion uh, and some variance uh, from town to town, these little tiny towns. Uh, and what we don't have, I gather, is kind of a constitutional poll star to sail by, like what it means to have the right to vote. Is that spelled out adequately in the U.S. Constitution? Well, no, it's not. Um, so, you know, there are, there are two different concerns and we should untangle them. The first one, the one that I was talking about in my earlier response, is about whether we can successfully navigate conducting a, a safe election during a pandemic. 
Uh, but your question is asked a slightly different one now, which is about, does the Constitution adequately protect voting rights? And I think the pandemic has illustrated that it does not. I mean, if you go and look in the Constitution and try and find where the right to vote is, you're not going to find it. What instead you will find are a series of amendments that say, uh, if you're going to hold a vote, you can't discriminate on the basis of, and then we have race and uh, age and gender and being at least 18. Uh, so uh, it's kind of a negative right as opposed to a positive grant of rights. And what that's meant is that as there's been litigation in the courts over, for example, whether or not um, election procedures need to be changed that voters can vote during the pandemic, the courts are all over the place. They're using kind of a, a sloppy balancing test to try to figure out uh, how to weigh voting rights. And if we had a stronger provision in the Constitution that guaranteed the right to vote, we wouldn't be in quite so bad a predicament during this pandemic. All right. So, yeah, and I think those two questions are, I, I, I grant the dichotomy that you're making, and you're absolutely right, but they're linked too, right? I mean, in a way, there's sort of a bedrock way in which I can be deprived of my right to vote, uh, either because, yeah, they can't make the whole mail-in thing work in a time of COVID, or because there are these other laws on the books. Uh, you know, if I've been convicted by, uh, convicted of a felony at any time in my life, even though, even if it were long ago, and as far as I know, I've paid my fines and paid my dues, whatever they were, uh, I can still be deprived of my right to vote. I mean, the fact that it isn't encoded anywhere that, that, that people absolutely, you know, by default should have the right to vote, that that, that, that should be the default assumption anyway. It, it affects all of these kind of sub-considerations. Sure. And, uh, you know, let's take two examples, one that you just uh, alluded to. Uh, in Florida, uh, the voters in Florida, overwhelmingly, Democrats, Republicans, passed a law, an initiative that restored the rights of felons to be able to vote uh, once they've completed their sentences. And the Florida legislature came back and uh, said that, um, well, no, you can't uh, vote unless you uh, can show that you've paid all of the fines and fees that might be due from your criminal activities. But Florida has not been able to come up with any kind of database to let anyone know uh, who might uh, owe these fines or fees, whether or not uh, they owe them. And a federal district court said, you know, that that system doesn't work. It's disenfranchising. The United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit um, uh, put that ruling on hold, which means up to three quarters of a million people won't be able to vote in Florida. And now we're fighting over that at the United States Supreme Court because we don't have the strong voting rights protection. Here's another example. It also went all the way to the United States Supreme Court on an emergency basis. In about two thirds of the states, you can vote by mail without an excuse. But in a third of states, you need an excuse. And Texas has taken the position that lack of immunity from uh, COVID-19 is not a legitimate basis to claim disability to be able to vote uh, uh, by mail. And so for the last two weeks, they've been having early voting and today's election day. They're voting in Texas in polling places without uh, uh, adequate protection 
some polling places having to close down because there are not poll workers who are willing to work under these conditions. This is certainly disenfranchising voters. And yet Texas is taking the position. It's just fine to say that only voters over 65 and not those under 65 can vote by mail if they feel like they that would be a safer thing for them. Uh, so, I mean, these examples just show you, and it's a state by state slog, right? We don't have any national standards that apply. And so in some states, it's just going to be a lot harder to vote than in other states, whether we're talking about the pandemic or not. Right. And then we see we've seen it now. We have yeah, three elections, I think, are happening in America today. But we've seen some already. We've seen what happens and uh, what happens, uh, what happened in Milwaukee when all of the precincts kind of collapsed uh, into a smaller number of precincts, which causes big lines, which means people are waiting together near one another in a time of COVID. I mean, rather than making it safer uh, than they made it more unsafe by by making people wait longer together. It's like exactly the opposite of what you would want to do in these situations. So, you know, you said we were kind of close to the line where we can fix some things. Mention some things that we could fix. Well, the first thing is, I think everyone who wants to vote by mail should be able to vote by mail. And uh, in some states, that's not true because they have these uh, excuses uh, that must be provided. I'm not generally a, a huge fan of vote by mail, but during a pandemic, I think it is the safest and best way to go. But this means that even in states that allow vote by mail, they have to do it well. And what we've seen in the primaries is that people are being disenfranchised in two ways by uh, uh, lack of capacity. Number one, some people who've requested absentee ballots never receive them. And then they either have to go to a polling place, which might be consolidated or, or closed, uh, or, or they're not going to vote at all. Uh, the other thing that we're seeing is uh, that voters' ballots, when they're cast by absentee, uh, are being rejected at a much higher rate than votes cast in a polling place, simply because you have to follow a lot of technical procedures, you know, sign your ballot or include, uh, you know, the last four of your driver's license or get a witness or whatever. And, and voters are not doing that. In California, where I am, 100,000 votes were disqualified because voters didn't follow the uh, correct instructions. I mean, so, so even if you agree that vote by mail is the way to go, you've got to have procedures in place to make sure it happens well. And so on absentee ballots, I've been saying we need to flatten the absentee ballot request curve. We need to have people request absentee ballots as early as possible so that the post office and election officials have that capacity. We need more money. Congress hasn't provided enough money. Only about a tenth of the amount that's uh, needed has been required. And we're going to have a lot of people voting in person, in part because some people are not going to trust vote by mail or they're not going to get their ballots. We need to have uh, appointments or some sort of system. We need early voting. We need to spread people out physically uh, so that polling places are safe places for people to be able to vote. It's not going to be uh, like the snap of the fingers and all of this is going to take place. Who's going to work the polls? We need to start recruiting young people to work the polls because older people are more susceptible to the virus and are going to be less willing to work at the polls. So all that said, you don't get poll workers in a day, right? All of that stuff, printing more uh, absentee ballots. Take the example of Georgia, 2016 in their primary 36,000 people voted by mail. In their primary in the last month, over a million people voted by mail. We need to ramp up our capacity just in the same way that we need to ramp up our capacity in the healthcare side when it comes to the pandemic. Right. 
I think, you know, it would be great if poll workers could be treated kind of as frontline workers are in other contexts now. I mean, maybe even they have face shields and stuff like that. But that, all of that is a huge ramp up of resources. Uh, but I also want to just talk about the fact that all of that will take place against a backdrop of messaging coming from the very top uh, in the White House to here in Connecticut, the state Republican Party is opening a tip line called the Connecticut Republican Voter Fraud Task Force, uh, whose goal is basically to fly spec applications for absentee ballots uh, and try to prove that there's hanky-panky going on or um, absentee ballots or mail-in ballots. We can use them kind of interchangeably here. And, and you know, sitting underneath that, Rick, is I'm so I'm 65 years old. Uh, and for most of my life, one of the things I didn't worry about was the validity of election results. You know, I mean, uh, this is such a recent thing, the way that it's been introduced. I, I mean, I'm certainly aware of uh, of the history of it. But I mean, really, something that you could have a pretty high level of confidence about uh, was election results in, in America. Now, between Russian hacking and, you know, having to switch to different kinds of voting systems because of COVID and just because of the messages being sent, I, I sense there's just a much higher group number, percentage of people who aren't sure that they believe in the system anymore. Well, I think that's right. And the whole point of my book, Election Meltdown, uh, which was, uh, as you mentioned, came out just before the pandemic, it came out on the day of the Iowa caucus debacle. Um, I, the whole point of that book is that American confidence in the uh, fairness and legitimacy of our elections is going down. And I try to explain why that is. And, and my first chapter is about this uh, almost exclusively Republican uh, claim, which is uh, pretty much unsupported in um, uh, social science evidence that we have a, a major problem with voting fraud in the United States. What we have are isolated cases of voting fraud, uh, sometimes committed by voters, sometimes committed against voters, um, but very low rates. And it's very difficult to pull off given the safeguards that we have in place. And uh, these claims of voter fraud uh, not only are used to justify laws that make it harder for people to register and vote and that don't actually prevent any appreciable amount of fraud, they also convince uh, those on the right that voter fraud is a rampant problem, and they convince those on the left who see these restrictive laws and recognize that they're not needed to prevent fraud as a means of voter suppression. And so it's a kind of a double whammy. This fight over voter fraud uh, convinces both sides that the other side is trying to cheat. That combined with the other factors that I discuss in Election Meltdown uh, are the ones that are leading uh, many Americans to say that they don't know if they will trust uh, the results in the election. And one of the things we know from uh, our social science uh, surveys is that losers tend to be much less trusting of election results than winners. Mm -hmm. So if my guy won, the election was fair and square. If the other side won, someone must have been cheating. And so we really have to worry about this because when you think about what a democracy is, a democracy is a system in which uh, people cast their ballots and the losers, while disappointed, accept the results of the election as legitimate and agree to fight another day. And if we don't have that, we don't have a democracy. And so really, we've been concerned about this for some time. Back in February, I convened a conference called Can American Democracy Survive the 2020 Elections? And then a group of us, uh, some of the people who are at that conference, uh, worked uh, uh, online, given COVID, over the next few months and issued a report 
which uh, your listeners can find by Googling the words fair elections during a crisis with 14 specific recommendations that need to happen so that we will have an election that not only will be fair, but will be perceived as fair by most of the people that are on the losing side of that election. Rick Hassett, we're going to grab a break here and we'll come back. Well, I should say, as we go into this break, one of the people who has sort of violated the basic dictum you are outlining in the beginning is Donald Trump, who, as you point out in the book, within a matter of days at one point, I think, said to a rally group, I will abide by the results of the election if I win. And who said, I think, in the final presidential debate uh, that he would keep everybody in suspense about whether he would accept the results of the election. So he kind of preemptively he reserved the right to to not participate in the results of the election. That should give everybody a certain amount of pause heading into 2020. All right, let's take a break. We'll come back with more. Rick Hassan. More than enough to become the 44th president of the United States. He will be the first African-American president uh, of the United States. I've been broke all my life, but I kept hope all them nights. You see business in my city? Yeah, they closed all them twice. I was just riding down Salem, all them damn potholes I can't drive. I know y'all can fix it faster, but I know y'all won't try. Don't nobody care about us. And that's my own vote. Voted for Obama back in 2012. I remember that's when I had hope. He was saying, yes, we can. And everybody got less food stamps. And when I turned 21, I was still broke. I'd never vote again. I don't think I ever had a president make my life better. Did it all on my own. Ain't no politician ever do a nice gesture. I don't even know the man. So we are back, uh, and we are talking to Rick Hassan right now. Uh, his book, uh, Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and the Threat to American Democracy, is terrific, by the way. It's, an, it's very readable. I mean, at times it's like a courtroom thriller. Uh, at times uh, it's like some other kind of thriller, maybe a kind of thrill that we hope we don't really get, but uh, it uh, really lays out the problems very well. Um, you know, I wanted to take a moment. Or, oh, first of all, I have to thank um, uh, Kat Pastor. She's there in the studio making it possible for me to work remotely. Uh, so I'm very grateful there. Betsy Kaplan, senior producer and producer of this particular episode. Tomorrow, we are going to switch gears a little bit. We're going to talk to Emily Nussbaum. Uh, I don't know if Emily Nussbaum remembers this, but when she was very, very young, she was on one of my earlier radio shows. She's now Pulitzer Prize winning television critic for The New Yorker. So... Rick Hassan, I wanted to make sure in the time that we have that you get a chance to talk a little bit about the role of the press in all of this, because one of the things that might happen, apropos of that scenario I was talking about going into the break, where Donald Trump decides to fight the uh, results of an election in which he loses, is ways in which maybe we play into cranking people cranking people's doubts up, maybe starting with maybe on election night where we're saying, well, the results aren't in. How come the results aren't in? I mean, you kind of saw this uh, with the Iowa caucuses, this kind of sense that the press unwittingly started to make people think there was something wrong somewhere. So how, how can we be better agents in all this and still stick to our mission? Right. I think that that's a key point. And it's uh, of the 14 recommendations in our report, fair elections during a crisis, the one that seems to have gotten the most uh, positive reception so far has been about uh, the press, uh, educating the press and the press educating the public that uh, especially under pandemic conditions, we may not have the results of the presidential election if it's close for up to a week or more. Uh, why is that? Uh, because we're seeing this large shift to absentee ballots in many states. 
Uh, and while um, there's no evidence of fraud associated with a slow count, it does raise suspicions in our hyperpolarized atmosphere. So you take a place like Pennsylvania, which used to have a very low rate of voting by mail, same with Michigan, both states unconnected to COVID-19 uh, announced that starting this year, they were going to have uh, no excuse absentee balloting. And so we see lots of people who would have voted in person choosing to vote by mail, some because of the virus and some otherwise. And those ballots take time to process. Uh, they take time to process because you have to check signatures, you have to check other identifying information, you have to make sure everything's right. These are anti-fraud provisions that we want to have in place. But it means the kind of instantaneous results that Americans have come to expect uh, will not be there. And, uh, you know, one of the things that, that you see a lot on um, the news that's problematic is when all the in-person voting is done being counted, they'll say 100% of precincts have reported when that may be only half or a little more than half the vote. And so we need the media to stop talking about these things so loosely and explain what is going on. And we need election officials to be transparent. They need to say, all right, this is how many ballots we've counted. This is our plan for counting what's left. Here's how many are left. And here's when we expect to have results. New York, for example, had a primary three weeks ago. They still haven't announced results. They're one of the worst um, offenders. I I've often said that if New York were a Republican state in the South, there would be protests in the streets over voter suppression because uh, you know, it is just really poorly run and uh, it's, it's kind of given the benefit of the doubt. So we've got some weak links in how our elections are administered. That needs to be strengthened. We need to have patience and we need to make sure that all the procedures that are in place are adequately described to the press and the public and conveyed to the public so that we don't have a situation like we had on CNN where they had a count up clock after the Iowa caucus results were, uh, after the Iowa caucus voting was done, but before the results were announced. That's, that's a really bad message to send. Fast is not accurate in this circumstance. I mean, another part of that is, and it's something that you deal with extensively in your book, sometimes incompetence looks like conspiracy. Um, we've had this here in Connecticut in 2014, celebratedly, both the governor and the secretary of state uh, who were up for re-election showed up at a single polling place and the voter rolls weren't there uh, in the morning. <laughs> Not because of any conspiracy to de uh, deprive powerful politicians of their right to vote. They just weren't there. Uh, we've had problems with not enough ballots. We've had uh, in 2010 in Bridgeport, we had a judge extend voting hours because the, the, you know, the, uh, the ballots weren't there to be, to be marked and put into machines. And that's a problem too, right? If you, if you, and it was a problem in Iowa too. Yes. The press ginned up a lot of anxiety about it, but competence also winds up feeding conspiracy theories. Absolutely. And I should say first about Iowa, uh, it was the Iowa Democratic Party that was running that uh, caucus, not uh, Iowa election officials. Mm -hmm. They only really run an important caucus once every four years. They were running a caucus using new complicated voting rules and using a new app to report those results. And you know, then uh, they had a backup system where they put the phone number uh, that was supposed to be called uh, with election results on TV, which led to jamming of the phone lines, you know, the kind of dirty tricks that can crop up in elections. I think in America, you're much more likely to be disenfranchised by incompetence election administration than you are by uh, 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 intentional voter fraud or voter suppression. Uh, I mean, the reality is 
most election officials do a pretty good job most of the time. But when an election is really close, we tend to focus on those weak links. And these are the places where everyone puts their attention. And, and if you're distrusting what you uh, what, what might in fact be incompetence will appear to you to be uh, a kind of trickery. And uh, that further undermines voter confidence. So, Rick Hassan, we got about two minutes left. I'm going to just sort of throw it to you and let you talk about whatever you want to say here at the end. There's like three months and change uh, left, I guess. Uh, what 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 else do you think people could do or should do to uh, avert catastrophe? Well, because our elections are so decentralized, people should be checking in with their local election offices, make sure they have transparency plans, make sure they have a plan B. How are they planning on voting during a pandemic? What if there's a power outage or some kind of uh, trick? You know, how are they going to get information out to the people uh, so that people know when, where, and how to vote? What are social media companies going to do? We really need to pressure social media companies to make sure that they're removing uh, suppressive uh, messages about uh, when, where, and how to vote and that they give access to adequate messages. The media has a job to do. And Congress and state governments must provide adequate resources. And we need to tell them that they must do that so that we can have an election that will actually reflect the will of the people and that people will accept as legitimate. And it's, a, it's a tall order. Again, fair elections during a crisis. The report lays out 14 recommendations. I suggest people go there and for greater background to my book, Election Meltdown. All right. Thanks, uh, Rick Hassan. Yeah. So uh, this was pointed out in a, a panel that Rick was on, but in a way, the sort of patchwork system that we have here, uh, where there's 51 different voting systems, can be a little bit of a strength. It means there isn't one point of failure that can pull the whole thing down. But it means also that local vigilance at the municipal and the state level are incredibly important. There wasn't, there isn't one great big eye of Sauron watching this whole thing, but there are 51 different eyes and you need to also put your own eyes on what's happening. Uh, that sounds like a very mixed metaphor. We're going to leave now, but thanks for listening. And thanks to Rick Hassan. Thanks to Saskia Popescu also. Uh, and we will be back tomorrow. Talking about a revolution, oh no. Talking about a revolution, oh no. Talking about a revolution, oh no.